0: Good morning everyone. My name is Adam. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, it's great to have you with us today. I wonder if you've ever seen The King's Speech. Mm, A lot of nodding heads. It was one of the most successful films that was released in the year 2010. It won four Oscars and grossed over 400 million dollars. Tells the story of the so-called reluctant king. King George VI. King George inherited the throne after his brother, Edward VIII, abdicated. And he's called the reluctant king because he didn't particularly want to be the king, nor was he particularly suited for it. For his whole life, George, or as his real name was, Albert, he had a debilitating stammer. And he felt ill-equipped and undeserving to be the king, but the movie tells the inspiring story about his efforts to overcome the stammer and to deliver an inspiring wartime speech and to rise to the challenge of leading his people. Now, the reason I tell you about this is because today, as we continue our journey through the Bible, as we continue to look at the big picture of the Bible, we come to the rise and the reign of Israel's kings. Today, we're actually at the halfway point of our series. So far, if you've been around, you know that we've looked at creation, fall, promise. Last week, we looked at Exodus, and today, we come to kingdom. Now, you might be wondering, why does this matter to me? Why have I dragged myself down to church today to hear about a bunch of kings from thousands of years ago? Good question. I'm glad you asked. The truth is, that's a typical preacher's joke. I apologize. I'm better than that. now. The truth is, we all need a king. We all need a ruler. And if you doubt this is true, look around at the world read a newspaper, or log on to social media. We thought more technology might solve human evil and the human condition. We thought more education might be the answer, but none of these things have solved our deep and abiding problems. And if looking around at the world is not enough, look inside at your own heart. I think anyone with any amount of self-awareness, they have said to themselves at some point in their life, I cannot fix my own problems. I am powerless over my own issues. I need someone to help me, to change me, to rescue me. We all need a king. but Not just any king. We need a king who can give us a new heart and real hope. We need a king who can deal with our real enemies and our biggest issues. And the good news of this section of the Bible is that this is exactly what God has given to us. Now, you may have noticed that we've been working our way through this series so far quite slowly. As I mentioned, we're at the halfway point of the series, and yet we're only two books into the Bible. We've only covered two of the 66 books in the Bible. Well, beginning today, we're going to move a whole lot more quickly. So put your seatbelt on and sit tight. Now, what we've seen so far is that the story of the Bible is really the story of three main ingredients. God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. This was the pattern that was established in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. This is what was lost in the fall in Genesis 3. God's people, Adam and Eve, are exiled from the Garden of Eden no longer living under God's rule and blessing, but instead are now under the curse of sin and judgment. And this is why the beginning of God's plan to set things right, it is built upon these three main ingredients. The promises that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12 centre on these three ingredients. God promises to make Abraham into a great nation, people, God promises to give Abraham and his descendants a secure land, place. And God promises to not only bless Abraham, but to bless the whole world through him. People, place, and blessing. And we saw this storyline continue last week with the Exodus. We saw that God began to fulfill some of these promises. So Abraham's descendants became a great nation. They multiplied greatly while they were enslaved in the land of Egypt. And then after God rescued them from Egypt, He brought them to Mount Sinai in the wilderness and He gave them His law. He brought them under His rule and taught them how to live under His blessing. taught them how they were to live for Him in the world. And this is where we left the story last week. But as the story continues, we see God begin to fulfill the other promise, the promise of land. This is what the next few books of the Bible are all about, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and especially Joshua, how God takes his people from wandering in the wilderness to eventually bring them into the promised land. Now, the question is, now that they've entered into the promised land, will they obey? Will they be faithful to God and faithful to his word? Unfortunately, we don't have to go very far to discover the answer. The very next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, gives us the answer in graphic detail. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you know that Israel very quickly go off the rails. They begin to worship other gods, and they begin to look like all the other nations. They were supposed to be the solution to the problem, but they just simply become part of the problem. The book of Judges is a dark and a depressing read, and the whole book is a downward spiral. And it ends in this way. This is the very final verse in the book of Judges. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. God's people are living in God's place, but they're not living under God's rule and blessing. Instead, everyone did as they saw fit. Now, wouldn't you agree that this is a good description of the human condition in every age, including our age? Everyone did as they saw fit. This is the great mantra of our age. Don't let anyone else tell you what to do. Be true to yourself and yourself alone. It's the air that we breathe. And this is why the message of the Bible is so countercultural. Because the Bible comes along and it says, no, 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 we need a king. We need a ruler. We can't fix our own mess. We can't solve our own problems. We need someone to lead us, guide us, help us, and rescue us. Now you're not going to hear this message from the influencers on social media. You're not going to hear this message in the best-selling books. It's a deeply humbling message but it's also a deeply hopeful message because the Bible tells us that this is exactly what God has given us. God has given us the king we need to save, rescue, lead, and guide us. And this is what we're going to discover in this section of the Bible. Now, we're going to explore this section under three headings because we're going to look at three main kings. And the first, if you're taking notes, the first king is Saul. Saul the people's king. Now, we read it a moment ago, but after the chaos of judges, it seems like the people of Israel have had enough. And they come to Samuel, the last judge of Israel, and they say to him, we want a king. Look at their request in chapter 8, verse 5. Appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now, have you ever looked at something else that someone has, and you've thought to yourself, that's what I need. If my life is going to get better, if my life is going to flourish, that's what I need. We've all done it. And this is what Israel are doing. They're looking at the nations around them and they're saying, that's what we need. We need a king. Now the question is, what does God make of this request? Well, you might have picked it up in the reading. God sees this request as nothing less than a rejection of himself. It's not because they wanted a king. I mean, God himself had promised to send them a king, but it's the type of king that they wanted. They wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted to be like everyone else when God had specifically called them to be unlike everyone else. God had called them not to be like the nations, but God had called them to be a light to the nations. This is a a shocking request. And so what is God going to do? How is God going to respond? Well, perhaps shockingly to us, God grants their request. God gives them what they ask for. And you might wonder, well, if this request is so bad, if it's so shocking, if it's so sinful, why would God give them what they ask for? Why wouldn't He just kind of strike them down? Well, the answer is that God will sometimes give us what we ask for to show us that it's not what we really need. God will sometimes give us what we ask for to show us that it's not what we really need. Have you ever had this happen? There was something that you wanted so badly. You obsessed over it, worked for it, prayed about it, and then God gave it to you, and it did not turn out the way you thought it would be. It actually was more of a curse than a blessing. might be a job, or a promotion, or a car, or a house, or a relationship. These things can so quickly turn out not the way we want and hoped or dreamed. The job might take us away from our family or from our church. The car might become an idol that no one else can touch and that you obsess over. The house might leak or get moldy if you live in Queensland through La Nina. The relationship might break down or become manipulative or whatever it might be. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for to show us that it's not what we really need, because what we really need is him. And this king, like all the other nations, it's not what Israel really need. This king will not lead them into blessing. This king will actually take from them. This is what God says. You might have picked it up in the reading. Six times in just a few verses, God warns the Israelites and he says, this king is going to take from you. He will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take your fields, he will take your flocks, he will take your grain, he will take, take, take. But I'm sure you can relate, the Israelites had it in their mind that no, this is what we need, and so they don't listen to God, and so God gives them what they want. And Saul is anointed as the first king of Israel. And apparently, Saul looked like a king. Look at verses Uh, chapter 9 verse 2 there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he I thought about making this my life verse um, this week but (laughs) it just was too ridiculous I didn't go down that path from his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people if there was an ancient version of the bachelor Saul would have been the leading man tall dark, rich, handsome. He was everything that Israel were looking for in a king. And yet, he was also everything that God warned them about. Saul, the people's choice, turned out to be a disaster. He was deceitful, he was disobedient to God, and and quite literally a madman. He doesn't lead God's people towards God, he leads them away from God. And this is God's verdict on Saul in chapter 15, verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul, the people's choice, is a disaster. Now, the reign of Saul doesn't actually end right there and then. He would continue to be the king for a number of years. But the search for the next king had begun. And it began in an unlikely place with a very unlikely candidate. And it leads us to the second king that we're going to look at today, and that is David, God's chosen king. You see, God then sends Samuel to Bethlehem. Yes, the same Bethlehem that Jesus would be born in thousands of years later. And Samuel is to find a man named Jesse, because one of Jesse's eight boys would be the next king. That's kind of a funny scene. The seven oldest boys are then paraded before Samuel, almost as if Samuel's sitting there and there's a catwalk and they kind of walk down and spin at the end and go back. And apparently, these boys looked like kings. They were handsome and strong. But here's what God says to Samuel, a very famous passage of Scripture. He says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel asked Jesse, well, is this it? Are there any more? And Jesse says, well, there's the youngest one, but I didn't really think you'd want to meet him. He's out in the field doing his chores. David was so forgotten, so unimpressive, he wasn't even invited to the party. And so Samuel says, go get him. And David is brought before him, walks down the catwalk. And then God says, anoint him, for he is the one. David, the unlikely candidate, is God's chosen king. And David would prove to be a good king. David was a king who loved God. Have you ever read the Psalms? Many of them were written by David, and many of them express David's heart for God, his love for God, his deep desire to know God. David loved God. David also trusted God. Think about the most significant and most well-known event in David's life, his battle with Goliath. Imagine the trust that it took for David to face the Philistine champion. David also trusted God's timing. David had many opportunities to assassinate Saul, to kill him and to take the throne for himself, but he didn't do it. Instead, he entrusted Saul into the hands of God. He left it up to God to deal with Saul. David loved God, trusted God, obeyed God. And eventually, David ascended to the throne of Israel. At the age of 30, he he was anointed as king. He was installed as king, and he reigned for 40 years. And it was a reign of peace and prosperity and blessing. In fact, the rule of David, along with the rule of his son Solomon, it really was the golden age of Israel. It was the high point in their history. David consolidated the 12 tribes into one nation. He secured the borders. He even built their capital city, Jerusalem, which means the city of peace. It was a time of peace, prosperity, and blessing. And I can imagine the Israelites at that time beginning to think, is he the one? Is he the serpent crusher that was promised back in Genesis 3? Is he the one that that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12? Is he the promised Messiah? It was starting to look like it. That is, until you turn the page. And just a few chapters later, it becomes very clear that David was not the promised Messiah... He was not the promised serpent crusher, but David was susceptible to the serpent's influence, just like everyone else. Without going to the details, David is on his, the rooftop of his palace at night, and from that vantage point, he sees a lady bathing. And rather than look away and walk away, he sends someone to find out about her. And even when he finds out, it is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his close friends and loyal soldiers. He takes Bathsheba for himself. She falls pregnant and to cover up what he's done, David organizes for Uriah to be killed on the battlefield and he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. It's a sad and a sorry scene from the life of King David and it shows us he's not the promised Messiah. He's not the promised serpent crusher. And yet, it's not the end of David's story either. Because God, in His grace, loves David too much to leave him in his sin. God lovingly confronts David about his sin through the prophet Nathan. And it raises the question, how is David going to respond? What's he going to say to Nathan? He could deny it. He's the king, after all. He could rationalize it. I'm the king. You don't understand the pressure that I'm under. could shift the blame, but David doesn't do any of those things. He admits his guilt and he confesses his sin. And friends, this is what sets David apart from Saul. It's not that he was perfect, it's that he was willing to admit his guilt and turn to God for cleansing. And this is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean to be perfect it means to be willing to admit your guilt, to acknowledge your sin before God, and then to turn to God for cleansing and grace and forgiveness. Reminds me of what C.S. Lewis wrote in a letter once that he, that he wrote. Listen to what he says. He says, No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready, the towels put out, and the clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give it up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present to us. What do you do when you recognize the dirt? When you recognize your sinfulness? Do you run away from God to try and clean yourself up and so that then you can come back to God? Or do you run to God, the only one that can give you true cleansing? This is what David does, admits his guilt and turns to God. Now, this doesn't mean that there were no consequences, there were terrible consequences in, in David's life for his sin. There's always consequences for our sin. But you see, our sin is not greater than God's grace, and our sin does not defeat God's promises. God would still keep his word and keep his promises to Abraham. He would still bless the world through the line of Abraham. And now we discover that God will send the promised Savior, the promised Messiah, the promised King from the line of David. And this brings us to our third king, the most important and most glorious king of all, Jesus, the King of Kings. See, in that second reading that we had from Second Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David, and it is one of the biggest promises in the Bible. You see, David wanted to build a house for God. God was still, as it were, living in a tent. And David had a big palace. And David said, this isn't right. God, I want to build a house for you. And in response, this is what God says to David. He says, the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There is a king coming from the line of David that will reign over all and will reign for all of time. This is an incredible promise. And just like the promises that were given to Abraham, this promise is a little bit like a Russian doll. There's a couple of layers to it. See, the immediate fulfillment of this promise was Solomon. Solomon was David's son. You can read all about him in 1 Kings. And Solomon actually did build a house for God, he built the temple. But Solomon also did some really stupid things, like having 700 wives. I'm leaving that alone. (laughs) Worshipping idols. And this is why there's that reference there, I don't know if you picked it up in Second Samuel 7, to doing wrong and to punishment. Solomon was the immediate fulfillment. But you see, this promise, it goes beyond Solomon. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise goes beyond Solomon because Solomon is still dead. You see, this, he is not the forever king that was promised by God. And we get to the end of the Old Testament and we're still waiting for this promised forever king to arrive. And this is why when the angel says to Mary in Luke chapter 1, we really should sit up and take notice. He says, you will conceive to Mary and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Listen to this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is God's promised king, the one who would reign over all and for all of time. But just like King George VI, Jesus was an unlikely king. He had no palace. He had no servants to wait on him. He had no majesty to attract us to him. And he even died a criminal's death. In fact, it was at the cross as Jesus was hanging there, that it looked like God's plan had failed. It looked like God's promise was broken. It looked like Jesus could not be God's promised Messiah. But then three days later, when Jesus stepped out of the tomb, God's word was fulfilled. God's promise was kept. And Jesus was declared to be God's forever king. The king. ...that you and I so desperately need. The king that can defeat our greatest enemies... ...and give us what we long for. Jesus, like David, is the king who fights our battles for us. He steps onto the battlefield. He comes from heaven to earth. And he stares the greatest enemies we have. Sin, Satan, and death in the face. And he defeats them on our behalf. Through his death, he pays for our sin once for all. He disarms Satan... And through his resurrection, he gives a death blow to death itself. Jesus is the king that you and I so desperately need. Jesus is the king who gives us everything we long for. And there's one crucial way that Jesus is unlike David. You See, David was a taker. He took the life of Bathsheba for himself. He took the life of Uriah. He was like all the other kings before him. But Jesus does not take from us. Jesus only gives to us. He gave everything for us and he gives everything to us. Jesus is the king that you and I so desperately need. And I want to say to you today, don't look to any other king. Don't look to anyone or anything else. They will only fail at you and fall short. Jesus is the king that you were made for. And this is why Queen Victoria once said, I wish to be alive when Jesus Christ returns, that I might be the first monarch to take off my crown and lay it at his feet. What about you? Have you recognized your need for a king? Have you taken off your crown? Have you laid down your life at the feet of King Jesus? We're going to close now by watching a short clip. And it's from a sermon by the African-American preacher, S.M. Lockridge. He so powerfully, so eloquently describes our king, King Jesus, the king of
1: Phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's a sinner's savior. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He provides strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and he saves he strengthens and sustains he guards and he guides he heals the sick he cleans the lepers he forgives sinners he discharges debtors he delivers the captives he defends the feeble he blesses the young he serves the unfortunate he regards the age he rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meat. That's my king. He's indescribable. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him. And you can't live without him. Hey! Well... The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilots couldn't find any fault in him. Carrots couldn't kill him. Jeff couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. <laughs> That's my king. That's my king.
0: <laughs> That's my, my king. And he can be your king as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son and our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the king we so desperately need. He is the king we were made for. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so, Lord, wherever we are and however we've walked in here, help us to take off our crown to lay down our lives at your feet. It's only in you, Jesus, that we find everything we need and everything we long for. Lord, there there may be some of us here this morning and it's for the first time we want to take the crown off, we want to lay our lives down. We want to acknowledge we can't fix our own mess, we can't save ourselves. We need Jesus. Lord, help us to be people that increasingly live under the reign and the rule of King Jesus. That our hearts might reflect his love. That our lives might reflect his character. That in all things, he might receive the honor and the glory. And we pray this in the good and gracious and beautiful name of King Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.